God is great. He is eternal. But His greatness also means that He is immutable. He never changes. And that includes His promises to you. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright. Today, Tom continues his current series in Exodus 33 and 34. He has part four of a series titled God's Sermon on His Name. During the interaction between God and Moses after the golden calf incident, God unveils several glimpses into his own greatness, all of which put his amazing character on display for his people to witness. In today's message, Tom will show how God's revelation of himself shows the marvelous comfort that he is willing to interact with mankind by revealing his own unique name, and he expresses that he alone has all power. You'll come away seeing how such wonderful truths are the foundation for His greatness and all the more reason that we as Christians should praise and honor the one true God. Tom Pennington opens God's Word right now here on The Word Unleashed. There are only two ways that sin can ultimately be dealt with. Only two ways. One of those ways is by the Son of God suffering and dying for our sins on the cross under the wrath of the Father in order to purchase our forgiveness. The only other way sin can be dealt with is by the unbelieving, unrepentant sinner suffering for his own sins in eternal hell, Jesus taught. That's it. Find yourself a place to sit somewhere quietly and think about the reality. When you think about your own sin, that the only way your sin problem could be resolved is one of those two ways. Either the Son of God suffering in your place under the Father's wrath, or you're enduring that wrath forever in eternal hell. Those are the only two solutions to sin. Maybe you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ. You've not repented of your sins. You've not believed in Jesus Maybe you're tempted to think, and a lot of people think this. I understand. This is really common. I've talked to a lot of people who think like this. Maybe you think you're basically a good person. You believe there's a God. You believe that good and evil exist. You believe there's life after death. You believe you're one day going to stand before God. You believe there's a heaven and you want into that heaven, but, but you've convinced yourself that you're basically a good person, and when you stand at the judgment, your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad deeds, and you're convinced that on the basis of that, God is going to let you into his heaven. Now, let me say this firmly, but as graciously as I can. Please listen. When you think that way, when you say that, you're really saying God isn't that holy after all, and he's going to compromise his own character for you. Friend, let me tell you, that is not going to happen. God never grades on a curve. He demands perfection. 
It's not enough to obey some of His commandments. If you want to earn your way into heaven, if you want to earn your way into His favor, then you've got to obey them all. Galatians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, as many as are of the works of the law, that is, as many of those who think that by their own works and obeying God's law in doing good, those people, they are under a curse, God's curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. If you don't keep every single command, then you are under a curse. You are damned. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Getting to heaven by your own merit, by your own efforts, will simply never happen. So back to our text, what's the point here? The only way that you can approach holy God is through the only mediator that He has appointed. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's the one person who can represent you to God. He's the one person who can bring you to God. He claimed that Himself. You remember in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And listen to this, no one comes to the Father but through me. If you're here this morning and and you have this idea that you're going to get yourself to heaven, Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. You need to believe the gospel that you've heard sung, that I've already shared this morning, the truth that God, the Son, the eternal Son of God, took upon Himself humanity. He became fully like you except for sin. He lived in this world 2,000 years ago. He walked in a place you can visit today. He interacted with people, real people, and He lived a life of perfect obedience to God. He obeyed God's law perfectly. And then He offered Himself as a sacrifice for sin, not for His own because He didn't have any, but for those who would believe in Him. And on the cross, He bore every single sin of every single person who would ever believe in Him, satisfying the justice of God so that God could bring forgiveness to that person. If you're willing to put your trust in the work of Jesus Christ, then you can be made right with God. He will be the mediator to bring you to God. God then raised him from the dead in order to show that he'd accepted his sacrifice, and now he sits in heaven. One day he will return for his own. It's that Jesus who is your only hope of approaching holy God without being incinerated and getting what you and I, what we all deserve. So don't ever forget when it comes to sin that God is still holy. Secondly, we learn that God is great. God is great. In these verses, we get several glimpses of God's greatness. First of all, we learn that God is so great that He must condescend to interact with mankind. 
Now, we use that word condescend in a very negative, pejorative sense. You know, that person is condescending. That's not how the word is used here. It's a, it's a good theological, biblical word. In fact, if you look it up in the, in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find that con, to condescend is to graciously disregard your own superiority. In God's case, He graciously disregards the vastness of His superiority over us in order to interact with us. This is part of the greatness of God. You see it in verse 5. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud. He descended. He had to come down. He had to come down from heaven. He had to come down from the top of the mountain in order to interact with man. And he descended in the cloud. Now, you know that in the cloud here describes God's presence manifested in the cloud of his glory, or as it's in the original, the Shekinah. What was this? It was, a, it was a visible representation of the presence of God. It was a blazing, brilliant display of God's visible presence shrouded in a cloud in order to protect those who saw it. So by day, it was a, it was a cloud. By night, it looked like a pillar of fire as, as the cloud allowed some of the blazing light within to come shining through. It was a, a visible display of God's presence. The Lord descended in the cloud. So in order to interact with us, God is so great that He must descend and He must condescend to make Himself known, even shielding Himself so that we are not destroyed. Verse 5 goes on to say, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Him as He by the way, you'll notice in our translation that pronoun he is lowercase, implying that it refers to Moses, but it's likely not. It probably should be capitalized. Most translations and most commentators agree that all the verbs in these verses are being done by God. So let me read it that way. The Lord descended in the cloud, and the Lord stood there with Moses as the Lord called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him. Now, that expression, the Lord passed by in front of him, that describes God's answer to Moses' request that we looked at last week in chapter 33, verse 18, to show him his glory. This is all we're told of what Moses saw. The Lord passed by in front of him. As we learned in chapter 33, verses 20 to 23, Moses would not have survived a direct view of the glory and splendor of God. And so, God, you remember, shielded Moses in a cleft in the rock, perhaps the same cave in which Elijah sheltered years later. And then as the visible display of God's glory, this blazing light cloud passes, God removes the shield and allows Moses to see what God calls his back, meaning as some have, placed, have, some have called it the afterglow of God's glory. But verse 6 continues, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is the Lord proclaiming. Those two words, and proclaim, introduce us to God's sermon on His own name. 
It consists of what the Jews refer to as the 13 attributes of God, although they disagree and argue about exactly how those 13 are enumerated here. Some are clear and obvious, others not so much. Regardless, what we see in verses 6 and 7 is God and His predictable patterns. We discover His ways. Remember, Moses said, show me your ways. Well, here we discover God's ways, and And we discover His ways through several channels of revelation. First of all, we discover His ways through what He calls Himself, that is, His names. Verse 6, the Lord, the Lord God. A second channel of revelation is what He says about Himself. We call them His attributes. Verse 6 goes on to say, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and truth. And a third channel of revelation is what he does, his acts. Notice verse 7, we're no longer talking about who he is and his attributes, we're talking about what he does. They're verbs here, he keeps steadfast love for thousands. He forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generations." So God proclaimed His name to Moses. He explained the implications of His name or character, His attributes. Luther described these verses as God's sermon on the name of the Lord. Now, before we look at it specifically, I don't want you to miss one really important key lesson here, and that is that our knowledge of God is totally dependent on His revelation. 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. And he goes on to say, and the spirit of God has made the thoughts of God known in his word. So it's only because God has chosen to reveal himself that we know anything about Him. God's revelation comes to us in a limited way through the creation. We learn certain things through the creation, Romans 1 says. In Romans 2, we learn certain things about God through our consciences. Acts 13 says that we learn, uh, 14 rather, says that we learn certain things about God from His providence, His order and structure of the world. But primarily, we learn about God through His Word. And while all Scripture is God's self-revelation, what makes this passage unique is that in it, God reveals His response when His people, those with whom He has entered into a covenant, sin against Him and sin against His law. So, we've seen some of God's greatness that He must condescend to interact with man, but in the first name the Lord recites to Moses, it also underscores God's greatness. He is the Lord. Notice verse 6, the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord. Now, in our English translations in the Old Testament, when you see the word Lord, not capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. But when you see the word Lord in our Old Testament, and it's in all capitals, the translators are telling us that in that place, what really appears in the Hebrew text is God's personal name. 
Theologians call it the sacred tetragrammaton. Don't be scared by that expression. It just means the sacred four letters or the holy four letters. There are four Hebrew letters, specifically four consonants that make up the name of God. Y-H-W-H. Y-H-W-H. Now, Hebrew was originally written without vowels. And so, we can't be exactly sure how God pronounced His name when He said it to Moses here in Exodus 34, but linguists and and Hebrew scholars, as they've reconstructed the evolution of the language through time, have made their best guess, and their best guess is that it is something like Yahweh, Yahweh. So, you supply two vowels, an A and an E, Yahweh. By the way, when, when Yahweh was anglicized, into our language, it became Jehovah. Same word, different vowels were added, and the same Hebrew letters were anglicized, and it became Jehovah, but it's really Yahweh. Now, you may not know this, but this is actually by far the most common name for God in the Old Testament. It occurs over 6,000 times. It's a form of the Hebrew verb to be, In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God first announced this name to Moses in in sort of a a special way as he was going to bring his people out of Egypt, he used the first person. Yahweh, or Lord in all caps in our Bibles, is the third person form of the verb to be. So, God calls himself, I am. But when we refer to him, we refer to him as Yahweh, which means he is. But what exactly is the significance of this name? Well, this name points out the greatness of God. It also points out some of the goodness of God. We'll talk about that the next time together. But it points to the greatness of God in in three primary realities in this name Yahweh. First of all, it points to God's self-existence. I am the one who is. God is simply the one who is. What does that mean? It means that he depends on nothing and no one for his existence. To say it positively, God is responsible for all existence, including his own. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. As as Paul says in Acts 17, he gives to all people life and breath and all things. He doesn't need anything from anybody else. Instead, he gives. So it's God's self-existence. It also speaks of God's eternality. He simply is. That is, he always was, he is today, and always will be. In Genesis 21, verse 33, Abraham called upon the name of Yahweh, the everlasting God. Yahweh, the everlasting God. Psalm 90, verse 2, before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God's name speaks of His eternality, but it also speaks of His immutability. He is, that is, He's always the same. He always will be what He always has been. God is unchangeable in His being and character. He's not in the process of becoming something different than He eternally is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is the same 
in every generation and through all the ages. That's why in Exodus 3, when he revealed this name to Moses, he then said, you shall say to the sons of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. He's saying, listen, tell them I'm the one who eternally is. I'm unchangeable. I'm the same God that was Abraham's God, and Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, and I'm the same God today. There's a third glimpse of God's greatness in this text. It is that He is the Lord God. He is the Lord God. You'll notice He repeats the word Lord, Yahweh, and then He adds God. The Hebrew word for God is El. It's related to Elohim. It occurs 217 times in the Old Testament for the true God. It comes from a Hebrew word which means to be strong. So this when we say He is Yahweh God, we're saying He is Yahweh the Almighty. He is the all-powerful one. He has the power to do whatever He chooses to do. Think about this. God's actions are only limited by His character and His will, but never by a limitation of power. He is Almighty. Now, why should that aspect of God's greatness be encouraging to us here in this context? As one author puts it, His mercies are not the mercies of a frail, feeble creature like ourselves, but a God of infinite resources. He is almighty. So there is the the greatness of God. Now, why, why does this passage go to the holiness of God and then the greatness of God before we get to the goodness of God? I think Matthew Henry has it right when he writes this that the terror of His greatness may not make us afraid, we are told how good He is. But that we may not presume upon His goodness, we are told how great He is. So what are the lessons we learn in the context here? Christian, listen, when you sin against God like they did, When you sin against God and you come seeking forgiveness and you come seeking to be restored, you must never forget that God is holy. He hasn't changed His standard. He hasn't forgotten His law. He's not taking your sin lightly, and you better not take it lightly either. And you must remember that God is great. He is self-existent. He needs nothing from you. You need everything from Him, including forgiveness and restoration, mercy. He is eternal. But His greatness also means that He is immutable. He never changes, and that includes His promises to you. I love the way it's put in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to this. I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. You know what God was saying to the Jewish people? He was saying, listen, because my name is Yahweh, I am the immutable one. I'm the one who always is what I always have been. Because of that, I remember I remember the promises I made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so you survive as a people because I'm the same. Same is true for us, folks. 
when you sin against God as a believer, your hope is found in the reality of who God is, that He is eternally the same. The same God who declared His name to Moses in Exodus 34, who said, I am a gracious, compassionate God who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Folks, that is our hope. The fact that He never changes, that that's who He is. He was then, He is now, and always will be. Next time we study this text together, we'll examine the heart of God's self-revelation, what you've been waiting for, His goodness. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part four of his series, God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will have part five for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. Music